Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Welcome to a reconstructionsradio.com war room podcast. This is your host, Bill Evans. I have the pleasure of visiting in the home of Pastor Joe Moorcraft of Heritage Presbyterian Church in Cumming, Georgia. Most of you have uh, enjoyed Pastor Moorcraft's preaching for uh, many years, and we want to have him here today on the war room to not only award those who do not know him well, to to hear from his own mouth a little bit of him, about his background, what he's been doing all these years, and answer some of the questions that we've posed as far as how we might be able to surmount the obstacles that face us as the people of God in America in these bleak days. Welcome, Pastor Moorcraft. Privileged to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How do you? Uh, I've been I've I've uh, been told by some that you're their favorite hillbilly preacher. You're originally hillbilly is true. <laughs> I was ordained to preach in 1969 after attending a liberal liberal arts college and a liberal seminary. And my it was uh, I was ordained by the liberal denomination, the Presbyterian Church in the United States. I had three small churches in the Appalachia coal fields of Southwest Virginia. During that time, I was becoming a Calvinist, and I had a lot of time to read. So. Nobody told me I shouldn't read Rush Dooney. And so I would read Rush Dooney and I would read Van Til. And prior to that, I thought that Calvinism was just a collection of doctrines that didn't affect your ministry or your life. And those two men helped me see that the Reformed faith is not just a collection of doctrines, but it's a whole way of living and a whole way of looking at life. And so those early years were very important for me uh, in shaping my mind. I uh, left that, those three little churches to pastor a church near a college in Bristol, Tennessee, uh, where I pastored for several years. And then in those days, we left the liberal Presbyterian Church of the United States and eventually formed the PCA. I was there, and then some men came from Atlanta, Georgia in 1974 and said, Pastor Moorcraft, we want to start a church in Atlanta. Well, I was perfectly happy in East Tennessee, where I was. Uh, The courts had given all of our property to the General Assembly, the PCUS. My wife and I and six-month-old baby no longer had a house or a salary, but were living with people in the church and We'd meet in funeral homes and the like, and things were going great. I mean, we were growing and everything, and I had no desire to leave. So I told these men from Atlanta everything I believed as tactlessly as I knew how because I was trying to chase them off. So I thought I succeeded, and then a few months later, they came back and said, no, really. We want to start a Reformed church inside the city limits of Atlanta. So 
I came down here and it was obvious to me that this was my gifts were better suited here. So we came here in 1974 and uh, sought to build a church originally with 27 people. And through those years, about 2,000 people joined the church. Uh, the church never was big because you have the usual rate of attrition. And then we also started congregations from members of our congregation in various locations. And now I'm 71 years old and I'm starting a new congregation called Heritage Presbyterian Church and God is blessing. Uh, we uh, just organized the other day and elected new elders and deacons. We had 110 people there. And we have people from every kind of background, white and black, people who come out of various kinds of churches, people who are reformed, looking for a reformed church. And so God is blessing. After 40 years of, of working in Atlanta, Georgia, and writing books and doing CDs on sermonaudio.com and pastoring and building a church, we rejoice in all of the blessings and influences that resulted from all that. And so we're doing the same thing now, starting a church, because basically I'm a pastor at heart. And starting a church, seeking to minister to people in the church. At the same time, we have young men, various places around the country that are always calling us and asking us theological questions, asking for bibliographies, coming to see me or my going to their houses. Because I think the most important thing the Christian Reconstruction Movement needs in the 21st century is preachers. People who are called by God to preach, not just lecturers, not just teachers, not just authors of books, not just godly politicians and all the rest, but people whom God has raised up to preach with all the passion and all the authority of a steward of the mystery of God. Pastor Moorcraft, what do you think is the preferred way for a young man who confesses Christ, is discipled, maybe he was homeschooled, raised in a Christian home, he feels a sense of call to the ministry, lay out if you are, and, and maybe you've done this many times, maybe you've actually uh, put men through these paces. If you would, would you uh, lay out what your preferred uh, method of training pastors. And also, if you would, give us your critique of the present seminary culture. How important those questions are. 25, 35 years ago, the people who were the critics of the gospel that we'd have to oppose were lecturers in liberal seminaries. Now, the people that are the most critical of the historical reformed interpretation of the Bible are professors in the leading reform seminaries of our day. So that I only know of one or two seminaries as institutions that I would even recommend at all in this country. And the ones that are the standard ones, every young man that we've sent to, we've lost. There are good men at all these seminaries, but there are men that question some of the most fundamental things of the historic Christian faith, creation, uh, a young earth. And there's all kinds of attacks in these seminaries on the law of God. There is the uh, two kingdom theory 
that says that the church's authority is the Bible and the state's authority is human reason. And therefore, the church may never call the state to repentance in terms of the Bible. And many of these famous Reformed scholars are now embracing gay marriage, not because they believe in it, but the legality of it since the Bible does not control and govern politics. Uh, and then there's another movement in these new seminaries. These There's all kinds of heresies that are rising in ostensibly conservative Reformed seminaries. One is the, the uh, two-kingdom theory. The other is uh, in Reformed Baptist circles, more so than Presbyterian circles, and that is New Covenant Theology, which is, sounds good, except that, the, that this heresy teaches that the New Covenant in the New Testament is something completely other and different than any of the covenants that preceded it. That's a good way of getting out of having to obey the law of God. And then there's another movement that you find in Presbyterian seminaries called the Republication Theory that says that the covenant of, in one way or another, it all depends on who says it is what they mean, that the covenant with Moses is simply a republication of the covenant of works and therefore is not a, pub, a, a, a part of the covenant of grace. And then you have something called the Sonship Movement that goes through these conservative uh, churches. And they, although they all have their distinct features, they all have one thing in common. And that is they distance themselves from the jots and tittles of the law of God. As one man said who is in the two kingdom theory camp, he said at last in these new movements, we have a haven against theonomy. So every one of these are attempts to flee the comprehensive demands of God's law on every individual and every institution in uh, American culture. So what do we do? We need preachers. We need not just any kind of preachers. We need preachers that are called of God. We need preachers that having been called of God and approved by a, their church or their elders are willing to go through a strenuous preparation program where they are taught uh, thoroughly the various aspects that they'll have to deal with as ministers in their local churches. And, uh, and here's where I start with these young men. A young man just last week was sitting right there, and he said, uh, Pastor Moorcraft, I think I may have a desire to go into the ministry. What advice do you have? So I gave him my standard advice, which was forget it. Go do something else. Go find something you're good at and something you're happy with. And if you can find something that you're happy with and you're satisfied with, do it the rest of your life. Be an elder in a church, be a deacon, be an active member of the church, tithe the church, but don't go to the ministry. And then I said, and if you can't forget it in a few months, come back and we'll talk. Uh, because if God's called somebody to preach, it is, it'll set his soul on fire. Like the Old Testament prophet said, thy word is shut up within me like a fire within my bones and I can't sit still. Have you taken under your wings and actually 
trained young men uh, to, to, for the ministry yourself? Uh, through the years, many times. Um, and largely by, um, you know, back in the early 1800s, the Southern Presbyterian preachers that were great were taught and trained by lesser men uh, who knew the books to read. And so they would give these students books to read, show them where to go. And God created a race of giants in the early 1800s. So we know the books to read. We know the books they don't have to read, but they're going to be required to read in seminary and waste their time. And so we put them on strict reading lists that they have to write papers on these books. I'm a great believer in writing papers rather than tests, but for two reasons. One, it shows whether or not you comprehend the material. And second, a preacher's got to be able to know how to write. And it does uh, improve his writing skills. So we, uh, we, we recommend uh, reading lists. We guide people in those reading lists. And uh, I have, and these are free, uh, sermonaudio.com is one of the greatest instruments that God ever invented. And uh, I have on Sermon Audio uh, all kinds of seminary courses on MP3s. Uh, for instance, 25 or 26 hours of exposition on the Westminster Confession of Faith, 25, 26 hours on homiletics and the nature of preaching, how to preach, 25 or 26 hours on church government, on church history, Etc. And they're all there on sermonaudio.com that anybody can download. With the technology, Pastor Moorcraft, it seems to be becoming increasingly more amazing. And truly, these we need to think of these as not labor-saving devices or creature comforts, uh, but we really need to. Th- they obviously have to be con- thought of as, as nothing less than tools of dominion. Yes, sir. Does the technology and the ability to network with men such as yourself and other servant leaders in the church, would you say that it essentially seminaries are virtually becoming dinosaurs or uh, are irrelevant? Not necessarily, if they're very good. Uh, if they're very good, they can be useful. And uh, I have a lot of confidence in several of the men, for instance, at Greenville Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, so I haven't given up on seminaries. I'm just saying today things can be so expensive and it's very difficult for a young man to raise a family, make a salary, and to put in the effort that has to be put in in order to prepare himself adequately for the ministry. Do you think that a lot of men, when they uh, make me come out of the military young officers or they come out of the business community, Pastor Moorcraft, they come to faith in Christ, they read some books, they get serious, they've got good minds, but they've never been personally discipled by another man. They just naturally think that seminary is the next step. And they find that far from being discipled and their faith being strengthened, their marriage and their family is raked over the coals and they're just about yeah, driven. I've seen disastrous ministries and marriages because some sincere young guy loves to read theology. And if he, I've had them say this, they say, some of them say, I want to go to the ministry because I love to study. 
and I love to read theology. Well, you better love to study and love to read theology if you're going to the ministry, but that's not adequate reason to go into the ministry. And so they do need counsel. They need to be put to put themselves under wise elders uh, who are far uh, hard to find. Uh, and that's why I think that the local church is the base of operation for Christian Reconstruction. Uh, that that's where we have to start. That these young men with their families find a church where the gospel is preached and the reform worldview is preached without mixture according to the basic fundamentals and worldview of things like the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I believe to be biblical Christianity in its purest human expression, and uh, to put themselves under the preaching of the Word of God, to get involved in the life of a local church with full of kindred spirits, where there's elders who know what it means to shepherd, where there's deacons that know what it means to provide service for the congregation, where members do love each other and take care of each other, and where, the, where he can marinate himself and his family in the Word of God and be given wisdom uh, by some older preacher. That's the way I, I did it. And many other pastors that I know, you find a preacher. I'm going to put it as simple as I can, put the fodder where the cattle can reach it. Get a preacher, find a preacher in a church you trust, put yourself under him, meet with him, uh, listen to every word, let him try to shape your preaching. If you're called to preach, imitating some. Uh, there's about 10 preachers today that are out there, reconstructionists, and all of us have different styles. But uh, if you listen to every one of us, you would know who trained us. One man who uh, was not a Christian reconstructionist, a godly man, wasn't even that Calvinistic. But at one time or another, he was all of our pastors or we worked for him. And so even though we all have our unique styles, uh, if you knew him, you could hear him to this very day uh, in our the way we expressed ourselves or movements, uh, body language, and things like that. So that's not to say you worship somebody, but it is to say that you need to be, uh, young men preparing for the ministry need to be in a local church under elders with a preacher that they just take in everything he says. And I think also the way we used to do it and would still do it today and if we had the opportunity and we are in the midst of trying to create some kind of ministerial academy, is find other preachers because one preacher and pastor of a local church is going to have a hectic schedule, is get that preacher to recommend other pastors that are good in some particular area. And so that uh, there are other preachers brought in to the situation. Have you heard the recent comments from... From Andy Stanley, that if a person doesn't go to a large church, they're they're uh, it, it's an issue of pride, or they don't uh, they're somehow abusing their children. It, it always makes me wonder 
what are we what are we doing wrong? Are we not doing anything wrong that that smaller churches are the ones that work best to fulfill the, the biblical mandate? Well, he also said that expository preaching is cheating and easy and no way to grow a church. Uh, I will say this, it's a play on words, but I'll not explain the play on words. Some large churches uh, have no point. Now, if you know the situation, you know the play on words. But the thing of it is, uh, I have a friend who had teenage daughters. And he was going to that big mega church. And I knew he knew better. I knew he wasn't getting anything substantial from the pulpit. And so I just talked to him frankly one time. I said, why are you taking your teenage daughters to this mega church that's more rock concert than anything else? And his answer to me was very telling. He said, I want my daughters to know what the world's like, and this is the safest way I can teach them what the world's like. And then we wonder uh, why upcoming generations are weak. This man homeschooled his children. Uh, With that kind of attitude, homeschooling's not going to get very far. So, I think that the local church is the base of operation. And that is becoming more and more obvious to people. I remember several years ago, there were some organizations that all they knew was the family. I have some good friends in those organizations. But all they knew was the family. They didn't see any real role for the organizational church. And then a few years back, they started reading Reformed literature, Presbyterian literature on the importance of the local church. And so then they had a conference that drew thousands entitled Love the Church. And the whole conference was on how important it is families to be members of a local church, that individual families will not survive the threats of this culture if all they do is put their children in home schools and they don't become involved in a strong Reformed church. Uh, I've always wondered, um, Pastor Moorcraft, why churches don't hold fire drills. <laughs> and, and I don't mean uh, like a real fire, but I mean... I, I visited a group in Washington State, a group of local churches in the Yakima Valley who had recently formed a co- committees of correspondence. And they were basically trying to self-consciously network in such a way that they could come to each other's aid in time of trouble. How many churches have a plan of action, uh, you know, for... Hey, you've got a knock on the door, and it's a U.S. Marshal, or it's a, uh, or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, if you could speak to that, and how do, how can churches? What would you recommend for local churches to do to prepare for uh, possible tough times or likely tough times ahead? And a, a follow-up question related, since we're talking about the local church, is. 
what is the success rate of people literally influencing the elders and the church government when in bringing them, let's say, closer towards uh, theonomy? Or where is that watershed when it's time to leave, when it's clear that to that you can't reform the local congregation, you must separate? The second question is harder than the first to answer, but we'll talk about them both. I think that we've got to practice. The answer to your question is, how can churches, what should churches do, if anything, to, to uh, strengthen and help each other? We've got to practice the Catholicity of the church. We've got to be truly Catholic. Now, what I mean by that is Apostles' Creed Catholic, which doesn't mean Roman Catholic, of course. It means that we are members of a universal church comprised of all of those who make a credible profession of faith in Christ and their children. We've got to go uh, get to know each other, go to conferences together. Uh, I'm a great believer in churches having newsletters, developing mailing lists, things like you're doing here with Reformation Radio, uh, that all of those that love the Reformed faith, the historic Reformed faith, some are Presbyterian, some are Baptist, some are Episcopalian. Some don't know what they are yet. But uh, it's a growing number. I was asked a question, Bill, a few years uh, back by somebody, and the question was this. Whatever happened to the Christian Reconstruction Movement? Now, when he asked the question, it presupposed a negative answer on his part, which I was not going to give him. So I said, uh, you mean where are the Rush Doonies and the Bonsons? We don't have any. But the Christian Reconstruction Movement is bigger than stronger than it's ever been. They've read the books. They've read the manuals. They're under the radar. There's small little churches. There's radio stations on the Internet. There's uh, small little groups of people here and there. Some are bigger than others. Some will grow. Some won't. But they're out there. They're the infantry. And they're the holy warriors. And they're out there by the thousands. And that was impressed upon me seven or eight years ago when I spoke at a conference in Cincinnati, Ohio, called the Sufficiency of the Scripture Conference. Were you there? No. The Sufficiency of the Scripture Conference. And there were two or 3,000 people there. And the point of the conference is, the Bible is divinely authoritative on everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. I mean, it was a worldview reconstructions conference, although they might not have used the last word. That's what it was. And of these thousands of people, most of them were little baby reformed people. Most of them loved Rush Dooney and knew what it knew what the distinctives of Christian Reconstruction were. Hardly any of them came from denominations where you're supposed to believe those things. Hardly any of them came from mainstream Presbyterian churches. But they came from everything else. That these father families, not just, you know, a lot of times the wife is the best-read person in the family, not in this situation. That these men had been reading what they should have been reading, like Gary North said so many years ago, 
He who reads, leads. So the whole Christian Reconstruction movement is strong, it's vibrant, it's influencing people by the thousands. We've got to do more. We can never be satisfied with what we are. We've got to start new churches. We've got to seek to influence culture. That's the, uh, that is the great deficiency of much of, of those churches that once believed these things but no longer does, that we not only are called to reach individuals for Christ, but to change cultures, to engage cultures and to change them. There is a word that hardly is ever used in Christian's vocabulary today. And that is the word Christendom. Sounds Roman Catholic. That Christendom, we don't think in terms of it. That is a society where everything is brought under the Lordship of Christ. We don't think in those terms. All we think in terms of today is saving as many uh, isolated individuals uh, from hell as possible before Jesus comes and burns everything up. And as long as we think in those terms, we don't think in rebuilding Christendom, rebuilding a society that is based upon the Word of God. Now, before the Reformation, the medieval church had many flaws, but they knew what the word Christendom meant. For a thousand years, they sought to build Christendom, where every aspect of life was brought under the Lordship of Christ. They didn't do it well, but they understood something that we've lost in our culture, that our responsibility, says the Great Commission, is not to try to save isolated individuals here and there uh, from hell before they die, though that's a part of it, but to make the world's nations Christ's disciples, to make the world's nations Christ's disciples and bring the full authority of the Word of God not only upon individuals in those nations, but on those nations and on all their institutions until they bow before the victory banners of the Lord Christ. The other question, what what do you think is the watershed? What is uh, what are, are some make-or-break issues? When does a family determine, the head of a family determine, that his family must get out of a local congregation and seek another? Very, very important question. Let's start with the nominations. When does a family realize that nowhere in the Bible is a church or a denomination said to be a mission field? Uh, we have well-intended people whose families have been in denominations and churches for decades. And they love the history of their family in that church. And they want to try to save the church. And they want to make the church a mission field. The church isn't a mission field. It's an army camp, according to Revelation 20. It's where you go to get your rations, your ammunition, clean your weapon so you can go back in the field the next day to fight towards the Lord. And uh, it's a place where you go to be strengthened. You bring lost people with you. You bring your family with you. And uh, the church becomes a place where you can't live without it if you're going to continue the war that has to be fought. 
So the first thing is that I made this decision along with a bunch of other people in 1973. When does a denomination become apostate? We are to separate from apostate churches, Acts 19. It said when the leaders of the synagogue started speaking evil of the way before the multitude, Paul separated the apostle, the disciples and taught in the school of one Tyrannus. So there are denominations, and I made this decision for my family in 1973, that were great in the past and that believed the truth in the past, but through the years left the foundations of the historic Christian faith. No longer believed in the infallibility of Scripture, sought to synthesize Christianity with various other uh, philosophies, uh, rejected biblical ethics, became proponents of homosexuality and of abortion. And when a church becomes apostate, it's the Christian's duty to leave it. And so there are apostate churches out there today, like the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. It's the duty of Christian men to uh, disassociate themselves from apostate churches or congregations. But even all, even uh, besides that, there can be sincere churches uh, where the preacher loves the Lord and the elders love the Lord. Although most churches, congregations in America today do not have elders. Most congregations do not have elders. Uh, there are certain things you look for, and if you find somebody that appears to love the Lord, talk to the preacher, talk to the elders, take them out to eat, buy them books. And uh, if he doesn't preach the truth comprehensively, or if he refuses to expand his understanding of what he's supposed to preach, find another church where there is the faithful, comprehensive preaching of the Word of God. Now, when you go to a local congregation, there are certain things you look for. You want truth. You want the preaching and believing and practicing of truth. You want fellowship. Uh, where you share your life with other people. And you want the opportunity for ministry. Very few churches have all three. Try to find one with all three. But sacrifice everything for truth. Pastor Moorcraft, what, just roughly, what percentage of ruling elders that you have known in your ministry years were actually involved in making disciples in the, in the, in the sense of the Paul-Timothy model, where they actually, in, obviously shepherding of families is important, but uh, I, that seems to be something that's missing. And you think about, shouldn't churches virtually raise up their own future leadership? Well, now the question you asked me was, not how many elders are there that do this, but how many do I know? And 
My answer is comparatively several. I know comparatively several. Uh, we've just elected new elders in our new church. Uh, one is a realtor, one's a teacher, and one's truck driver. They know what they're supposed to be doing. And they're fearless, they're courageous, they're compassionate. They know they're supposed to be shepherding churches. They know they're supposed to be building churches, advance the kingdom of God outside the churches. And I know several uh, elders like that uh, around the country. I travel and speak a lot. So I know a lot of elders that uh, view themselves as board of directors. They meet once a month. They, they uh, make decisions for the church, and that's about it. And that's along with bad preaching, bad elders. I tell people that weak elders is the second worst thing in Presbyterian churches. The worst thing is weak preachers. Uh, how, how, what big of an issue do you see the 501c3 uh, corporate status? To what degree do you, do, do you think that that has uh, hobbled the church? Do you think that it's going to be become gradually worse? And do you know or can you recommend steps for churches that want to disentangle themselves? That is a very important question. That uh, And it's interesting that the Reconstructionists are the ones that are most consistent in standing for the organizational separation of church and state. Uh, everybody, particularly... Uh, everybody thinks that we, because we believe the church, the state, individuals should obey the law of God, are Erastian. Now, Erastian was a historical name in the 1600s for those that believe that the church is under the state. And, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and the Reconstruction Movement believes in no way, shape, or form that the church is under the state, though, though most every other body, particularly those that are critical of the Reconstruction Movement, do be, practice that. For instance, I think churches should not co uh, incorporate. Now, the reason they originally did back in the 70s and before is they thought that was a pragmatic way of protecting their property from the larger denomination or from the state. And it was pragmatic more than biblical, and it didn't work. Uh, and a, what is a corporation anyway? It is a, a creature of the state. And so when you incorporate a church, you're saying this church is a creature of the state. We've got to get the church's permission to exist. I mean the state's permission to exist and own property. So I, I think incorporation is a terrible thing. It's an enslaving thing. I think uh, getting 501c3, asking the IRS's permission to receive money without being uh, uh, legitimately, we don't have to ask the IRS's permission to be. That I think that's even worse. But it's a myth that a lot of people are, they're not evil, they think the church should be a 501c3 because they say the IRS requires it. If people in the church are going to deduct their tithes, on their income tax form. Well, number one, the IRS does not demand it. That's the first thing. Number two, 
if the IRS demanded it, we still shouldn't do it. I think it's, what, 577 is the uh, IRS pub that, that basically says that churches were immune. See, we're not taxed. Uh, a church is tax immune. We're not under the Constitution of the United States. Now, that sounds so radical in the modern world, but the United States Constitution is for the civil government. And the church isn't under the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and, uh, and our founding fathers in the history of the United States had given testimony to that by knowing why they wouldn't tax churches. Not because churches are tax exempt, but because they're tax immune. How much do you think, Pastor Moorcraft, have pastors consciously curtailed their message or held back because of fear of government reprisal? Isn't there a group? Isn't like a? Isn't there a group where they do have election day? There's one like one day where they basically. Uh, go all out to to criticize government from the pulpit or something? Uh, throughout the history of the church, the, the Puritans and the Reformed people would have Election Day sermon. And that's where they preach something directly to the civil government of the United States or the state of Georgia. We still practice that. Uh, but the uh, I, th- I do think there is the fear of reprisal which I think we're going to see more reprisal as time goes on. Uh, With the decision of the Supreme Court to legalize homosexual marriage, we're going to see more preachers that preach and churches that stand against homosexual marriages found guilty of hate crimes or of discrimination. So there is the possibility of... uh, punishment of the civil magistrate the church has always had to face that and and stands against it but i think there's other reasons i think there's other reasons why the church doesn't speak out against the civil magistrate it doesn't think it's supposed to because it thinks that's detraction from the gospel because so much so many churches that should be reformed and others today are uh, neoplatonic or pietistic That is, they believe the only thing that's important is that which is spiritual, subjective, heavenly, and become involved in uh, social issues is to uh, be distracted from your primary call in life of saving souls. Well, I like to tell people Jesus did not come to save your soul. Jesus came to save you, body and soul, and this whole world that he created. So there's got to be this involvement on our part. I ran for the United States Congress several years ago, and somebody asked me, uh, why, why am I as a Christian running for the United States Congress? And I said, because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And I'm calling people to submit to the king of the earth. So I, I think people don't think they're supposed to. Their pastors have told them, we're just supposed to keep it spiritual be concerned with spiritual ecclesiastical things and not directly address the world in all of its evil, politically, economically, etc. And I also think that uh, preachers don't preach substantive sermons. This is the biggest reason. 
because if they increase the biblical cultural knowledge of their congregation, they got to work harder to preaching. So I do believe a lot of preachers just want to keep their congregation on pablum so they can play golf more frequently. Bojadar Marinoff said that any preacher that's not actively trying to make himself irrelevant is not worth listening to. <laughs> that's good. Let me ask you this question. To be good anti-Erastians, uh-huh. that's a good word, mm-hmm. anti-Erastians, what would you recommend for parents when they recognize that they have gifted sons and our daughters, if you think that's not off limits? No, I don't. Uh, for them, if they wanted to pursue politics, what sort of course of uh, studies would you recommend if they're thinking long range? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me go back and say I think girls should not be civil magistrates. But the I wrote a little book called With Liberty and Justice for All, Christian Politics Made Simple. And if somebody's never read a book on how the Bible relates to politics, this is as simple as you can get. It's basically a 120, 30-page book on applying Romans 13. Uh, It's gone through several editions. The only place I know you can get it now is at Chalcedon Presbyterian Church. Uh, But it is a very simple introduction to how a Christian is supposed to think when it comes to politics. I think that a person should not get involved in politics until he has read certain books and devoured them. Law and Liberty by R.J. Rushdoony. It's a paperback. If somebody's never read Rushdoony, that's the place to get your feet wet. The best book I know of on politics is Politics of Guilt and Pity by R.J. Rushdoony. Uh, I think one of the very most important books published in the 20th century that shows how to apply the law of God to the details of life politically, socially, economically, morally is Institutes of Biblical Law by Rush Dooney. Now, I I don't believe there's any perfect book outside the Bible. I don't even agree with every sermon I've preached in my life. (laughs) But those are three very absolute essential books to read if somebody's going to thinking about politics, law and liberty, politics of guilt and pity, and institutes of biblical law. He's got to have a grid on how to look at all the political issues comprehensively, exclusively in terms of the word of God. Because there are, as you know, there's such a great variety of issues out there. There's a great complexity to them. And you've got to know what you're supposed to believe because just getting involved in politics means nothing. I mean, I know Christians with the thousands that are getting involved in politics and they think somehow by being involved in politics, that's going to help. Not if you vote the wrong way. Not if you vote for the wrong candidate. Not if you hold the wrong opinions, then you become part of the problem. So the place to start is to familiar, you know, it talks about the sons of Issachar and in reconstruction of circles, we love this verse where uh, effective people understand their times and they know what to tell Israel to do. So that if somebody wants to become involved politically, which I think is, a, is an honorable calling, as long as he doesn't realize, as long as he doesn't think that politics is messianic, 
which most Christians do, is to know what you're supposed to believe from the Bible and then understand what's going on around you. Understand what the issues are. And uh, in your local area, not just on a broad level, but everything. Know what's going on around you. Read, have news sources, news sources that you can trust, as well as reading the opposition's news source. I think Howard Phillips, who was a good friend of mine and a very staunch constitutionalist in Washington for years, read the New York Times every day. And I did it too, as long as I could afford it. Uh, you, you, you can see so much about the issues from the other side. Know, know what, they're, what, how, what the issues are to them and uh, find news sources that you can trust. I think it'd be great if somebody had a radio station that had news regularly from a thoroughly reformed perspective. Do you think that a law degree is, uh, how important do you think that is for a person who hopes to become a Christian statesman? Would he be better served to be a farmer? Uh, maybe. It all depends on the requirements of the state for running for office. Uh, I mean, if you're going to run for a state where you have to do this or that to even be qualified, well, then you got to do it. Uh, now, law schools. I used to have a course for young men graduating from law schools on law and justice because I had young men, graduates from law schools here in Georgia, who said, Mr. Moorcraft, please tell me something about justice. I just graduated from law school and only learned how to win cases. He said, I don't know anything about justice. So I think it is important for somebody, whether he has to or not, to go into uh, politics and know about law, know about your own constitution, know about the constitution of the United States, uh, know the constitution of your state, their, their strengths and their weaknesses, know what the laws of the land are, both good and bad so that you can speak more intelligently about the issues than the opposition can. Because if we, if the, the people out there, your ordinary John and Susie Doe, if they think that we have better answers than they do, that is the other side, then the average John and Susie Doe is going to come to us for the answers rather than to the opposition and with that, you'll see the beginning of a transition of power from them to us. What about uh, church courts as dispensing justice when there is none to be found in civil courts? I think that uh, church courts are to adjudicate, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 6, that uh, un. un like what the common fundamentalist position is, 1 Corinthians 6 does not bar somebody from taking issues to a civil court. Read Calvin on 1 Corinthians 6. But I think there's so much could be done if elders knew that they were judges and that they were to adjudicate in cases. We've had situations in the churches I've served where John had a complaint that Bill stole money from him. So we adjudicated it at the session. 
and uh, looked at the evidence, brought in witnesses, came to a conclusion, and both of the men were satisfied. Uh, I had another man one time, one of my best friends, who came to me and he says, Joe, I have proof that my partner has stolen $1 million cash from me. He said, uh, what should I do? I said, well, I think you got one of three choices. You can, because you see, theft is not only a sin, it's a crime. And God instituted the civil magistrate to punish crimes. I said, you got one of three choices. You can bring the guy before the session, except he's not a member of your church. Or you can get him arrested and take him to court to get your money back. Or if losing a million dollars will not affect your family finances and you want to put yourself in a position to lead this guy to Christ, you can eat it. You can just forget the million dollars. I said any one of those three is consider the situation, the context, the consequences, be honest before God. And so he decided to eat $1 million. Well, that's what Luke 6 would say. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, it, it, although a cloak is a lot easier to eat than a million dollars. I know, I know. Well, listen, I have to ask because I've seen the copy of uh, your book laying there. And since it's uh, not as widely available, this is my next, and maybe be a good place to wrap it up for the day, Pastor Moorcraft. How would you like us to read your books on Reconstructionist Radio to make it available? That would be great. Uh, it has been made into an audio book. Oh, it is. Uh, I'm not that literate on the internet, but I will check and see uh, how easy it is to get. And Bill Potter did it, actually. So... I'd be more than glad for y'all to use it. Well, if Bill Potter has got an audio version and we can, po- we would love to post it because you'd be in good company. I know. I would tell him. <laughs> and there's one other thing uh, I wrote. This is a commercial here at the end. I wrote a 5,000-page uh, commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, it's five volumes, and it's on everything I know about theology and ethics. And uh, some have called it a seminary in five volumes. And so if you, if people who are preparing for the ministry, if they want to have a, a uh, massive five-volume work on every aspect of theology and ethics from a distinctively reformed theonomic postmillennial perspective, that might be a good, I mean, I don't claim to be a great writer, or scholar, but uh, where's that available? It is, crap. there's hardly any left there in my basement. So, uh, uh, we have about 50 sets left, and uh, they're being people are taking them to Eastern Europe, and young guys who know English are reading these. And about a month ago, it was set on the desk of the King of Sweden. Uh, so if people would like to have that set, uh, they're $125. They're five beautiful sets, 1,000 pages each thereabout, plus handling, because I can't afford to pay the postage. 
Uh, but anyway, so um, they can get it from me. Plus, I think the most important aspect of Christian Reconstruction is the reconstruction of congregational worship and of private worship. So I wrote this book on how God wants us to worship him. I think this is where you start. I read a book once about the Reformation in Europe. And it was basically about the Reformation of worship and the purity of worship. And wherever there was an attempt in a culture, I will warn people about this, in Europe during the Reformation, whenever there was an attempt to purify worship, there was war. Pastor Moorcraft, we really appreciate uh, you making your home available to us. Uh, it's not easy to get here in a big truck, but thank you so much. You've been, uh, you've been a blessing to so many of us. I tell people you have been my companion for probably 100 hours or more on the road. You poor guy. Well, no, I tell you what, I, when you cry, I cry. <laughs> so uh, that's the, we're going to wrap it up, and this is the, the first. Hopefully, we'll have others. We'll, uh, we'll reload, and Lord willing, we'll speak with uh, Pastor Moorcraft again on another edition of ReconstructionistRadio.com War Room. Thank you for joining us in the War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2. By my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage?